Hello and welcome to In Conversation, a DubLab podcast where each week we will bring you interviews from the DubLab radio archives. We've only done a few tiny um, gigs. Uh, We were very inexperienced, but so full of enthusiasm and uh, ideas and um, exploring different musical styles. And so that record was kind of different from any of the others we did, really, because it was exploring all the various possibilities, possible futures we could have as a band. And um, it's interesting how... It ended up being a very influential record, I think, for a lot of different bands who picked up different uh, aspects of the record and developed them. It was very much like a cult thing, and uh, I think people were... It was a kind of very... very much like an art school crowd who were coming to the shows at first. So um, it it being the early 70s, you know, the... Um, kind of very well dressed, taking great care with how they looked and all that kind of stuff. And it was, uh, everybody seemed to have dyed hair, different colours and all that kind of thing. Um, and we had friends who would, you know, uh, art students and fashion students and so on. And, and they helped us to put together the look of the band and the look of the of the um, of the album cover, in particular Anthony Price, who was a great friend of mine, who oh, became a, a really close friend. His friend, who, who was an, an American photographer living in London, called Carl Stoker, who was, who was terrific as well. It was all very kind of cottage industry, you call it, where, um, you know, no assistance or anything. We all did it all ourselves. It was a kind of do-it-yourself kind of uh, uh, thing, kind of with the music and with the, with the look of the, of the thing, too. And that's how I met Brian Eno, was because he had a tape recorder. <laughs> we didn't have a tape recorder, even. Um, and... Uh, Andy Mackay said, oh, I know this guy who is into electronic music and he's got a tape recorder. And I said, oh, great, let's get him to come over. You know, he came with this huge German heavyweight tape recorder, and, which he could hardly carry, and uh, I set it up and he recorded the, some of the things we were doing and then he got involved fiddling around with Andy Mackay's um, sort of one of the early synthesizers um, called a VCS3. And uh, from that night onwards, he he stayed with the band, um, uh, treating the sounds of the guitar and the oboe and the sax. And uh, and we pursued all these interesting textures and sounds and, and stuff, which was a... We wanted to be kind of experimental, but at the same time, we, we kind of wanted to do that with tunes and with interesting lyrics. And uh, 
the lyrics to begin with were very primitive, but they got better as the first year developed. And uh, so by the time that we made the second album, uh, For Your Pleasure, I was really getting into the wordplay and image conjuring that you can do with, with words in song. And um, it's, it's extraordinary how different the second album was from the first, how much we'd learned in that first six months. Every dream I'm a heartache, really, and, and, and do the strand and editions of you. I, I, I like performing those ones to this day because, and they're in the set we've been uh, touring around because the, I like singing the words and, uh, uh, and they're sort of character songs. And, and uh, I never get tired of performing those ones. So many great um, saxophone players that I've listened to over the years, and uh, it's a big part of my music life, listening to sax and using it in, uh, you know, on record too. First with Andy Mackay, then people like Dave Sanborn. Um, but you know, I've, I've been a Charlie Parker fanatic, uh, devotee, since I was 10 or 11 years old. So, um, I love that. I love that sound when it's played well. Charlie Parker with strings, which, which is, it's a kind of a record that some uh, jazz people don't like because I think it's too mainstream. But um, since he's kind of, I don't. He seems to be flying and floating over the strings that. Uh, that play on the on that record, and it, it's actually his favourite record. I believe it was his favourite record, and he felt he'd done something really different, which he had, and uh, plays such beautiful standards. The '78s that I bought uh, at that time, yeah. Uh, a kind of a mixed bag of like Fats Domino, Little Richard, um, early Elvis, and um, and, though, and very important the Ink Spots records that my uh, my auntie Enid gave me. She was a big fan of the Ink Spots and uh, Nat King Cole, people like that, crooner type singers. You know. prove how versatile we could be <laughs> on that um, first record. So we would do one song and say, hmm, let's do another one like this, and then that would lead to something else. Let's do something which is different again from that. And um, at the end of the day, it, it was quite uh, an interesting mixture of things. I mean, uh, of course, it didn't have a single, you know, and um, that was the only... Um, Complaint that the record company had when we presented it to them, and, uh, and they didn't even know. They didn't complain. They just said, "Hmm, there's nothing really for the radio." And so, 
they said, do you have anything else? And I said, well, there's a song that, um, that uh, I'm sort of nearly finished writing, which we then went and recorded and after the, rec after the album had come out in England. And that uh, was called Virginia Plain, and that became a sort of a record they could play on the radio. So we kind of made up as we went along, and uh, I mean, Eno for some of those, those gigs was in the audience mixing the, the sound and adding the odd effect here and there, and wasn't on stage for, for some of the first shows. Then eventually we got uh, we got someone to to mix the sound. Actually, we got Phil Manzanera, who later ended up playing guitar. And the, the very first um, shows, he was mixing some um, for us. And... Can't Let Go, which actually I wrote when I was living here in, in the mid-70s. Um, uh, in a street called Quest Away up in Bel Air, and I mentioned it in the lyric. And, the, and um, it was, they were kind of quite wild times um, for me. And uh, I, um, I wrote that song here in, in, in Los Angeles, but then we recorded it in Switzerland. That whole album called The Bride Strip Bear, which is actually one of the best records I've ever made. And I, it was the first time I ever worked with uh, any Amer American musicians. Uh, I usually always worked with people from either you know, in Roxy, or I'd done by then. By then, I'd done a couple of solo albums with people like Chris Spedding and all English session players and so on, and uh, who are great musicians. But there was, I was really keen to to work with a, a couple of people from out here. student and I famously hitchhiked down to London, which in those days we, we didn't think was a big deal. But, you know, it would take many hours of hitchhiking to get there from Newcastle in the north of England, depending how many kind truck drivers there were in the vicinity. <laughs> and um, I, I went down to see the Stax Review with Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Eddie Floyd... You know, Steve Cropper, Booker T, all those incredible musicians from um, from the Stax label who were touring. And, and it was... So it was shortly before Otis Redding died, so I was very lucky to see, um, to see that. And it had a huge impact on me. much younger, 11 or 12, going to see um, Jazz at the Philharmonic, which was a kind of touring band with kind of Ella Fitzgerald and uh, Dizzy Gillespie and various all-star jazz players, you know. 
And that was pretty incredible. I was kind of blown away by that. And it was like um, the, all these moments were very important. Oh, and the same year, I went to see Bill Haley, actually, which was the, that was the first rock and roll tour of Europe, the Bill Haley band, which was kind of, kind of rockabilly, really, but it was like, it was the first kind of beginnings of rock music, you know? Yeah, that album, that, which was called These Foolish Things, was the... Um, it was a great record to make. It was after the second Roxy Music album, For Your Pleasure, and I, f I, was, I remember f I was feeling burned out by, by the writing, and I, didn't, I thought, I thought mm, I'd really like to make another record straight away, and as a, like a cathartic experience, you know. And so I, did, I, I thought, well, it'd be nice to just choose some songs that I really thought were kind of uh, influential to me and interesting and, and put them all together in the way that uh, people, uh, Sinatra and Crosby and so all the big singers um, of the 20th century, really, and Elvis, they weren't songwriters as such, they were performers, interpreters. So I thought, well, I'll do an album like that, where I'm like the singer and the producer. It was educational for me, and so and helped me to perfect the craft of record making too. You know, it gave me a lot more experience. It must be very hard as each year goes by for new bands to, I guess, to find a new sound. Because, you know, uh, the, um, there's been so much music since 1960. <laughs> I mean, there's been a lot of music with, you know, guitars turned up and loud and stuff. So, you know, uh, it's nice making a lot of noise, but um, it's, it's also great if you make very little noise and do quiet things that I'm beginning to discover. In Conversation was produced by DubLab, a nonprofit radio station broadcasting live from Los Angeles since 1999. Sound editing and theme song by Matea Bame. For more programming, visit dublab.com. And thank you for listening.